Welcome to Culture Bites, where we take culture theory and turn it into everyday insights. We're powered by Human Synergistics, and our mission is to change the world one organization at a time. We can only do that together with our amazing community, so thank you for listening. It's either aggressive or it's passive. There's no in-between. That's sometimes the response people have during coaching sessions. My name's Dominic Gawley, and I'm joined by Liana Sangster. Hey, Dom. So, Liana, what's going on with this? We hear people have this reaction. What's your experience been? Oh, it's so common. It's common in coaching, and it's common when we bring groups together to look at, you know, behavioral norms in organizations. And, you know, my immediate response is people go to a uh, reactive place, I think. So when they immediately start thinking about it, they're obviously something's resonating for them, and they're feeling a twinge of kind of, oh, well, what do you mean? It's not as effective if I operate this way. And they immediately kind of frame it in that what we would call absolutist thinking. If I'm not this, then I'll be this. So if I'm not following the rules, then we'll have complete anarchy. And it's an interesting space to navigate that I think a lot of our accredited practitioners who use the LSI tool will come across in their practice. So do you think that's a way of people just kind of defending themselves and defending their current behavior or thinking as saying, well, you know, building a straw man argument, right? And saying, well, if we don't have order conventional, then it would be Lord of the Flies out there and people are going to be kind of starting fires or something rather than the more reasonable, well, maybe we can, you know, be somewhere between those two extremes. Yeah, I think it is It is defensiveness, I think, as a, as a starting point. So when people learning new things that might be different to the way they have thought before, it challenges some of their old assumptions. So it creates a bit of a sense of uncertainty. And with uncertainty for some people comes discomfort. And so it would be natural to make an assumption that some people are responding in a reactive way because of that. I think on top of that is the overlay that if we were to crunch some data on the behaviours that we see in organisations, and for the most part we are working with organisations, it's that defensive styles seem to be more proliferate. I would say. Mm. Many organisations are leading defensively, which means that we're not necessarily exposed to, you know, what we could call the third way, that there's an alternative, which would still enable you to follow and appreciate rules and have some structure in place and be able to exercise some freedom within those. So I often say there's twice as many ways to be defensive as there, to be constructive. Totally. There's eight to four. And I think as well, on top of that, to build on that is, I think some of the defensive styles, they're more, you can make caricatures of them, right? Like we make the, a Christmas card every year where we go around the different behaviors and, and have a thing. And it's always easy to do the defensive ones because we can caricature them a bit and make them, you know, extreme and so on, whereas it's harder to do that with something like achievement or yeah. self-actualizing, right? And look, I think we've got to be careful of that too. So, so I wonder if when people are getting feedback, part of it is you've got to set it up that, look, defensive behaviors and defensive thinking, people don't do them because they want to be a pain. No one wakes up in the morning and says, you know, I'm going to be a real prick today. There's usually a reason people do them, or there's always a reason people do them. People are logical, right? So they get something out of it. You know, so conventional, hey, if you want a consistent output and people to follow instructions and so on, conventional works. Mm. You know, so in in like the car factories back in the day, it was very conventional and that works because you got a really consistent quality and a consistent output. Trouble is the trade-off of that is when things change, 
no one can think for themselves because they've checked their brain at the door. So they, now they don't know where to go. And so I think part of it is setting up the defensive styles that not everything about them is bad. Some things are actually, there's positive attributes to all the defensive styles. Yeah. But there's also a downside. And if you lay some of that out at first, I think it can temper down people's need to feel like they need to defend themselves because you can say, well, you know, I understand why you do it, right? You get something out of it. You're not just like a bad person or something for, for yeah. doing that. And definitely, we, we often find that out in the marketplace, it's easy for people to attach good and bad to our circumplex. You know, so you might uh. hear people say red and, red and green, bad, uh. blue's good. And it's somewhat misleading because it would come down to a judgment call and a values call for some uh. individuals on what they consider good and bad. The metric is really designed for, we know that greater effectiveness, long-term sustainability comes from certain behavioural patterns and that some defensive styles will slow you down or hinder your effectiveness. And so uh. I think framing is really important to understand that this is a measure of effectiveness, not about what people consider good or bad. You know, interestingly, to use an example recently, the two styles that seem to get a lot of challenge in business is the conventional, not surprisingly, uh-huh. and perfectionistic. And you'll often get people saying, oh, what's wrong with some rules? We need rules because, you know, we've, we get audited every three months or so and we've been in trouble recently. So if we don't have people following the rules, we're in serious trouble. Likewise with perfectionistic, you know, if I, you know, I do want people to be delivering perfect results because if we don't, it means that, you know, if we get this chemical content incorrect, it could end up with something catastrophic at the other end, uh-huh. you know, consumer being damaged by the goods or whatever it is. And so that is in essence, that absolutist thinking is actually a really great coaching opportunity because what you're noticing is individuals moving from two extremes. So it's either we get it perfect or it's not at all. Uh-huh. And teasing that apart is in essence what you're trying to to do with individuals when they respond because what they're doing is responding to something that is counter to what they feel comfortable with. And I often find for those psychs or counsellors out there, people who have low tolerance to ambiguity feel comfort in things Uh. being perfect and things being rule-bound. And so it is a great coaching opportunity to understand what happens when things aren't perfect and how do you feel when things aren't going exactly according to plan because in that Tension and anxiety sits an opportunity, you know, to coach someone's awareness around building some techniques to deal with that, I would say. The interesting thing for me on that is people talk about like perfectionism is an interesting one because, well, things should be perfect. And, you know, that kind of makes sense, right? We should be doing it perfectly. Part of the reality of the world is that things don't go perfectly, right? That's just how it is, no matter how dedicated you are or whatever, things go wrong. And Part of the trouble, see the so the payoff. I mean, there's good things about the perfectionist style. If you look at some of the items that we have under perfectionism, business-like, practical, those aren't bad things. But it's when it's that at that extreme end of the spectrum, we do things like when something goes wrong, you cover it up because I don't want people to know that you know I made a mistake, right? Mm. Because I've got to appear perfect. It's not see perfectionist isn't about being perfect. It's about appearing perfect. I think that's quite a different thing. And you'd start to, one of the great coaching opportunities I think around perfectionistic is how do we shift it from setting unrealistically high goals and being self-critical and as you said, attaching self-worth to Uh that perfect outcome 
to shift towards how do we set standards of excellence and then pursue those with a sense of positive learning kind of mentality. And so that that is often the shift that people are trying to make between the two and starting to get people to explore, well, what is the cost attached to holding on to some of this perfectionistic thinking and is it worth it? Thinking about a client who's you know, in the process of, I guess, processing some of that feedback for herself at the moment mm. and sitting rigidly with the need to hang on to perfectionistic because she's rewarded for it, which is another layer, I suppose, of why it's reinforced in our world because she's reliable produces these perfect results, works long, hard hours, and people are saying thank you Uh. and I can always keep coming back to you. But for her in this scenario, it's about trying to, A, as I said, recognise the cost to self and then B, start to identify when it's essential to be deep diving in on the detail. So where those high-risk, high-priority projects that really do require fine-tuning to the detail and which of it you don't. And I think sometimes that is the challenge for people who have high perfectionistic in their nature to differentiate when it's essential and when it isn't. And I think that's a great point because going back to the extremes thing, people would say, well, either I'm focused on it or we just don't care at all. You know, like it's quite an extreme view. But the thing about, especially with focus and prioritizing, like you say, the thing is if you, if you prioritize everything, in effect, you prioritize nothing, right? And so the achievement way would be to say, okay, what's the overall mission? What's actually important here that we need to achieve? And then what are the priorities thereafter? Mm. And that's quite a different thinking. It's not saying nothing's important, right? It's not that other extreme. It's it's actually a, a third way, if you will, that's off the continuum between, you know, everything and nothing is, well, actually, let's look at what really matters and what are those priorities and attack those. Mm. And actually, it's going to lead to better outcomes because you're actually tackling what's truly important. What are we actually trying to achieve? Not yeah. trying to tackle everything at the same time. Yeah, it's a great point. I, another client that I've been working with, she had a bit of a light bulb moment, very strong perfectionistic spike as well, started to, she also had a bit of approval going on. So they were kind of working, you know, together and in a way that was really sort of driving her into the ground. She started to learn to ask the question, you know, before saying yes to delivering, there was uh. questions around, is it essential or is it something that you want? You know, uh. putting some, some gaps between constant delivery and assessing the value and the overall importance in tandem or in relation with our goal, our long-term goal. That is a helpful way to shift, I think. And I think, that's, I think the other way about it is like people who are high on perhaps power or, you know, competitive and so on think, well, if I'm not going to do this, then it's all about singing kumbaya and hugging each other and being nice. And so people often think it's about being nice and, okay, we've got to smile at each other and we've got to, you know, be pleasant. But that's not constructive, Mm. actually, right? Constructive is about, hey, sometimes you have to give respectfully straight feedback, Mm. right? It's not just about being nice. Being nice is approval. Yeah. And so that makes it tricky for people because it's a bit more nuanced than people sometimes think that we can get on and have a solid relationship, but we can still disagree. And in fact, to be constructive, you have to be able to disagree, but still walk away. You know, you disagree with the idea, not the person Mm. kind of thing. We can still have different views, but we respect each other and therefore can move forward and make better decisions. And in fact, if you have no disagreements, 
then either it's because you're brilliantly in lockstep and are full of fantastic ideas, or more likely, there's unraised concerns that you're just not yeah, saying. You're not hearing them. Yeah, so that's a really interesting one if you're dealing with individuals that have that high task orientation. You know, sometimes they'll look at that sort of read in their profile and they'll go, that's great because we're getting a lot of stuff <laughs> done. You know, there's not, And that's very true. You're probably getting a lot of stuff done. The relationship, yes. So how do you help build what does a constructive relationship look like? And so for some individuals, particularly with power, it's about inclusion in decision-making as well. And so how do you build the relationship so that you can not make those decisions unilaterally but involve others? Because typically that high power is people are looking at that sort of behaviour and they're thinking, you know, let me in. Can I support you some more? Can I be involved? And I think sometimes there's a bit of a belief that if you're a leader, you need to be seen to be directive and Uh. in control and, you know, making decisions and appearing confident. And I think that's another side of it. So if I was going to start going into that fluffy, affiliative, friendly space, maybe people won't respect me anymore. But if you can start to introduce a way of using that affiliative around tasks, so that's about building more people into decision-making Therefore, it still sits within the task realm, but you're also building trust with others. That can be a helpful way for people to sort of shift mm. shift from that. You triggered me with a thought, which was around a term, and this may be a whole podcast on its own, but the term vulnerable leaders and so on. And to be honest, it's one that kind of makes my skin crawl to some <laughs> extent, because I think it's really easy for people to be like vulnerability. Like, you know, it depends how you do it, right? Because it could be in a very passive space, right? of just self-doubting and so on. And I know the intention is about being real, really, right? It's really actually about being in a self-actualized kind of space. Yeah, it's like the authentic leadership. I'm authentic, but it can sound very soft at times, right? And so, you know, it's it's getting that through, okay? So it's not about I'm just self-doubting and, you know, being out there and being kind of sad. It's about actually I'm I'm just having an honest and frank assessment about myself which actually is a very hard thing to do, right? To to be truly transparent and truly vulnerable. Um, it's hard, but it, I don't know. The word just kind of <laughs> sets me off. I it's, don't like it. Oh, you know, I I also think that I would never say to my, okay, so let me rephrase that. I would rarely say to some of my leaders, you know, you need to be more vulnerable. I think what it needs is repackaging because mm. vulnerability is kind of like an outcome of a good relationship and probably mm. a lot, someone who's done a lot of, work on themselves to feel comfortable being vulnerable in a space where perhaps it may not be valued or encouraged. But I think what people are looking for in the space of vulnerability is they're looking for the antithesis of the tough exterior, of the I'm faultless. And so sometimes on that note, what you can do is just encourage leaders to share the odd example where they have made a mistake because it allows for people to think, okay, you're human. And it's, it's, I think that's what people are getting at when they're talking about vulnerability. Because if you've got a leader who always seems to be so composed, directive, and doesn't show much of who they really are, it's hard to get an edge on, mm. you know, and to feel like you can be the make imperfections that and, make us human, sort of thing. Yeah, and typically that red, without making assumptions, that red style. If we're talking high power, high perfectionistic, there's someone there who doesn't really want to be seen as anything other than perfect. And there's a lot of anxiety that sits in that space. So it's very difficult for them to do that, but it's very powerful as well. It gives other people permission. Well, I was on the phone to someone the other day who was doing a debrief of someone who is high perfectionistic, high something else, competitive perhaps, very low, like no colour on the P 
people side, either passive or constructive. And it was interesting because the question was around, well, you know, if I say, oh, you got to go out there and be friendly with people, it's not going to resonate with this person at all because mm. they don't value it. And so a lot of the discussion was around, like, that's very true, right? So in that situation, I wouldn't take people to the opposite extreme. Instead of going opposite, try and swing them up. So rather than doing things out of a perfectionistic way, um, do it out of achievement instead. Mm. And because the difference between those is perfectionistic is kind of an antisocial way of getting tasks done, mm. whereas achievement's much more pro-social. And so therefore it, it's bringing people in. It's still about task, you know, and it's still about getting things done, but it's getting things done in a way that brings people with you and is more effective essentially. And so it's an easier sell, I think, to move people that way. And then over time, yeah, let's keep the dial going around, right? And keep going towards humanistic encouraging or whatever it may be. Oh, I like that, antisocial and pro-social. Yeah, when I'm looking at ASO complex, it's, it, obviously we, we talk about people in terms of primary and secondary styles, but really it's a whole, people with their whole unique selves and everything kind of influences the other. But when I'm looking at that high perfectionistic corner up there, I'm thinking, how do you still achieve results but with others coming with you? Because in that corner is taking care of every detail yourself. Mm. And so often what I'm looking for when coaching individuals like that is what's not really going well for them because typically what will fall out is exhaustion, stress, not enough hours in the day, not enough time for the family. How do we use, you know, what are the the tools you're not using at the moment that can help alleviate some of that? So you kind of want to keep at some point, you want your affiliative above your perfectionistic and your achievement above your perfectionistic as well. So you're able to learn from your mistakes and you're able to lean on others to get things done. And that's back to that payoff and trade-off, right? So perfectionistic, they might be getting things done, but there's a cost in their life of exhaustion and stress. And there's a finite time that they can keep working at that level. I think they would all agree. Yeah, you burn, burn out eventually, right? And you yeah. know, we see that. And it's interesting in our workshops and stuff when you see people with the perfectionistic style in particular. Often when it's kind of raised to the surface of something, it's like a big relief, like they suddenly can unwind or something because they've yeah. just been wound up quite tight for forever. So yeah. it's an interesting one. I feel like we haven't really touched that much on the on the green side of the circumflex, have we? But the other really common one is is that conventional, which we talked about briefly earlier. Mm. How do you get people in, say, you know, very bureaucratic thinking or bureaucratic businesses to feel comfort in not leaning on some of those really rule-bound behaviours to get mm. things done. And I think the tension for them sits in, I don't actually know how else to encourage people mm. to get things done. Mm. And so one of the, I think one of the light bulb moments lands for, for businesses who are high on conventional is where it's not about removing the rules and we're su- not suggesting that we take away all the procedures that have kind of put you where you are today and for really for a degree of it have helped you to be successful. Mm-hmm. The idea is to introduce and remind what is the goal, what is it in service of. And so that's then where you can, you know, hold on to the good parts, that conventional, the rules, the processes, the procedures, the consistency that comes from doing things established ways, but being mindful of what is this in service of? Who is our customer? What is our objective? Is it still working for us? And how do we need to be agile to that need of the customer at the same time? I think the the key one with conventional for me is you know do i follow the rules even when i know they're wrong yeah right and so like it's wrong i know it's wrong but i'm still doing it anyway and that's when you're getting further out there and that's when 
it's ineffective and you know it's ineffective because yeah. you know it's not the right thing to do. Yeah. But you still do it anyway. And often people just don't they just don't realize. Like and that's the that's where culture has a bit of an influence I suppose on the behaviors of people that they have been doing things a certain way for so long that they have stopped to think about why and what could be done differently. Mm, spot on. So there's always a context for these things. Always a context. That was great, Liana. So a couple of the takeaways I took from this was that discussion about the what's the payoff and what's the cost of doing these styles. So people do things for a reason and there can be good reasons for that, but it comes with a cost associated as well. And that was really around not demonising defensive styles, but understanding where they're coming from and why. And then it was around moving people away from thinking in these extremes. If it's not order, then it's chaos. And if it's not you know, delivering tasks, then it's just standing around saying nice things but not really getting anything done. And instead it's getting them to hold on to what they're trying to achieve, right, what the value is, but doing it in a different way. So doing it in a way that brings other people along with them, that includes other people and ultimately focuses on the ultimate goal. Yep. Thanks for your time today. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Tom.